Hey, this is Alex Moore, lead pastor of New Life Community Church in Kansas City, Missouri. Thanks for taking time to listen to this message. For more information or to donate, visit newlifekc.com. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to week number two in our series, To My Friend Who Left the Faith. All right, we're in church. This is an honesty moment here. We're going to ask a question and see really what you think. How many of you have noticed that Christians tend to be a little judgmental. Anybody ever notice that? Uh, the young people, next generation, you know what they'd say? They'd just say, Christians are so judgy. If you feel like, what's that mean? It's in the Urban Dictionary. It just means that people are judgmental. And so we have this idea sometimes that Christians come across with this air that they are almost looking down at you. Like in like the old King James English, they are holier than thou, right? And that kind of air that comes with Christians sometimes is kind of condescending. It's like they know something you don't know. They're living at a morally superior life. They've been blessed by God. And you, if you're not, you are kind of less than. And sometimes Christians get this label placed on them that they're judgmental. And, and as a person myself who's grown up in church, I get that. Like I've met some of those Christians and they can be a little bit judgy. Um, and it's funny, isn't it? Christians have this tendency to fight and argue about some of the dumbest things. Um, some of you may not know some of these arguments, but hey, welcome to the family. Here we go, insider talk. I've had people get mad and argue that I was reading the wrong version of the Bible. Oh, you're not reading the right translation, Pastor Alex. That's not what Paul would have read. Listen, y'all, Paul didn't speak English. They're all translations, all right? Um, so some people would be like, you know what? Uh, your church has just got like the wrong version or style of worship. Because like I saw some people raising their hands, and it was like we were in a concert, and I don't know about the lights. And, and I've been to some places, and I saw the fog and the smoke coming in. And I was like, I don't know about this. This doesn't seem like it's from Jesus, right? So people argue about your worship styles. Um, then they get even weirder. It's like, oh you don't listen to 93.3, do you? The mix? What about 95? Oh, you're not listening to secular music. Oh, Lord forbid you listen to T-Swift. <laughs> oh, and all I got to say to that is you just need to shake it off. All right, just shake it off. <laughs> Some people think if you listen to secular music, you're like the devil. They say, hey, you shouldn't get a tattoo. Oh, no, don't you dare go to Disney World. And oh, you're not still shopping at Target, are you? Have you heard about their bathroom policy? Christians can get all up in arms and judgy about a lot of things. Uh, a few years back, uh, Missy and I had a little trip we took down to San Antonio, Texas, and we were visiting the Alamo. Anybody been to the Alamo? So we're at the Alamo, and there was somebody there that I don't think was supposed to be there. He is what I would call Mr. Angry Street Preacher. He had his microphone and his sound system, and I'm pretty sure he had like a soapbox, and he was standing on it, yelling at people who came by, turn or burn, you're all going to hell. And it was like, whoa, buddy, calm down. And I was even like feeling 
Like, oh man, I thought we were going to be on the same team, but then you're taking the name of Christ and you're like not making it look very good. And I don't know if I even want to be a Christian now because you're so anti-Jesus. And, and maybe even if what you're saying is maybe truth, it doesn't come across as kind. And so we have like all of these perspectives, right, of Christians. Sometimes they're judgy. Sometimes they're fighting about dumb things. Sometimes they just aren't kind. And I think that we have to realize that Christians have kind of made a name for themselves. If we were to poll and talk to people who maybe aren't in this space or in a church building, that what kind of words would people use to describe us? And here's my list, all right? Here's my list of what I think some people outside the church feel about us as Christians. Are you ready? All right, now some of you guys might get ready to fight me on this, and it's okay, listen, we're in a safe space here, all right? So here's some of the labels that I think are being attributed to Christians in our current context, in our world today. That we are anti-homosexual, Trump-supporting, gun-toting, small-thinking, pro-choice, fundamentalist hypocrites. It's a pretty good list, isn't it? That kind of hit on all of the markers. Let's go through it again. What do people think about us as Christians? Well, you're anti-homosexual. Oh, no, we're not going to have another gay pride parade, are we? Oh, no, my favorite team is going to have to wear a rainbow colors. We're coming across often as anti-homosexual. Trump supporting. Oh, uh, man, I don't know when all Christians became Republicans, but, hey, we all became Trump supporters. Uh, Gun-toting, we've got to keep those amendment rights so that we can protect ourselves. Small thinking, we're not open to very many outside perspectives. We're pro-choice. We don't believe in abortion. Um, and so that kind of puts us into a conservative camp politically. We're kind of fundamentalists, and we're hypocrites. Now, some of those titles, I understand where they come from, right? I've met those people. I've heard those political cries. I understand where those labels come from. But I don't know about you, but I don't like being labeled, I don't like being called names. I don't like whatever my perspective is of the world as a Christ follower being stereotyped into a very small box, and I'm labeled, and I'm categorized, and I'm almost dismissed from conversations. And as a Christian and as a Christian leader who's trying to help other Christians, I don't like the name calling. I don't like those words, because those words paint a picture of a person who doesn't look like Jesus, and I'm trying to look like Jesus. So the issue here this morning, I think for those of us who call ourselves Christians, who are kind of being labeled in our world today, here's the question, is how should we respond when we're labeled? The labels are happening. You've seen those people who find out that you're a Christian and then their disposition changes towards you. How do we respond to the labels and stereotypes that are being applied to us, whether or not they fit or don't fit? I don't want to be categorized. How should we respond? Well, I think the first thing that we could do, this is an option, is that we could just ignore it, right? We could be dismissive. We could act as though there's no validity to anything they say. We could just brush it off our shoulders, act like it didn't happen. We could just ignore it, right? That's an option. Jesus gave us that option. He was questioned before Herod, and he said nothing. We have that option, too. We could say nothing to the labels and the th things that are going on. Or we could do number two. Instead of ignoring it and just being dismissive of it, we could become defensive and confrontational. 
Now, sometimes this is what I want to do, right? I want to go Old Testament. I want to become like Elisha. I don't know if you know this story. We don't talk about it a lot in church, but it's a fun one because in 2 Kings, see, we have this guy who's a man of God, and he's being called some names. He's being made fun of. He's being labeled. And it says this in verse 23 of chapter 2. It says, Elisha left Jericho and went to Bethel. And as he was walking along the road, a group of boys from the town began mocking and making fun of him. We're going to learn something about Elisha right now. He was follically challenged. (laughs) Go away, baldy, they chanted. Go away. Go away. Bald men leave. No more bald men. Get out of here, baldy. And so this is sometimes how I want to respond to the labels in the world. I want to be like Elisha who turned and looked at them. Can you see those eyes and that bald head looking at you? And then he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And then get this, two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of them. I would love for that to happen sometimes, wouldn't you? I would just like there to be that Leonardo DiCaprio revenant moment of everybody getting attacked by a bear. And then I realized that's probably not what Jesus would want. I think that there's a natural response in us when we are labeled, when we are stereotyped, to want to either ignore the accusations and just dismiss them, Or we kind of get confrontational and we get mean-spirited. We get heavy. We get hard with people. But I want to suggest a third option today that's not so much based out of a reaction to those people. It's something that's going to require a little bit more forethought. And, And what I want to challenge us to is when the labels and the stereotypes come, is to number three, to pause. To not respond immediately. We're not cursing them. We're not praying for bears out of the woods. We're also not dismissing them as though they don't know what they're talking about. But what if we just paused for a moment and had some more consideration? Is the label that's being attributed to me, is the stereotype, is there any validity to it? Is there any reason why that would be applied to me? And am I guilty of any degree being a part of what that stereotype is? See, I think if we're able to pause and have a moment of self-reflection and looking inward and saying, is there anything in me that aligns with that thing that doesn't align with God? And I think that even if we came to the same position we were before the process, I think the process of looking inwardly, evaluating where we are, is going to allow us to have a more thoughtful response. It's going to allow us to be able to communicate more clearly and communicate possibly in love not just out of emotion and reaction. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, there's this interesting verse. And in the middle of the verse, it says this. It says that he, speaking of God, has planted eternity in the heart of man. He planted eternity in the human heart. Listen, if God has planted eternity in the human heart, that means that there's a longing and a desire for us that's beyond this world. That there's something in us that knows that there's something more beyond this life. There's something in us that's actually saying, what is the purpose of this life? There has to be more than what I'm living. And I believe that that is from God, that we've been created to desire this thing that we don't even know what it is. And so if we're all humanity in that place and we hear about Jesus, we hear about Christianity, you know what our natural response to that is? We're going to ask this question, is Christianity real? 
That's the question that we all want to know if eternity has been placed into the heart of man. I got to know, is that real? Or am I supposed to chase down Islam? Am I supposed to chase down Buddha? Am I supposed to chase down Scientology? What am I supposed to chase down? Because there's this longing for something more. What's going to fill the void? And I hear about your Jesus, and I hear about Christianity. So I want to know, is this real? Is this the solution? Is this the answer for what my heart has been longing for? And I think that we have this sense of eternity in our lives. We possess this innate knowledge that there's something more to life than what we can see and experience in the here and now. And so if people are investigating Christianity, part of that investigation to to make it valid, is this real? If they're going to examine the truth of this, you know what they're going to do? They're going to look at the lifestyle of people who claim to follow Jesus. Is Christianity real? Well, let me look at people who call themselves Christians. Let me look at their life. Part of their investigative process to say, is there evidence that this Christianity is real? Is looking at those of you who take on the name of Jesus and saying, are you for real? Or are you just talking a talk? Is it just a religious rhetoric? Do you just go to church on Sundays to appease your own conscience? Like, where is the reality of this? In church circles, sometimes Christians are told that they're the only image of Christ that the world may see. And while that's true, it's also sometimes sad when we look at the version of Christ that's being portrayed to others. If we truly are representing Christ to others, if we're the commercial that people see for Christianity, if we're the spokesperson for this faith, it begs the question, how are we doing? And I believe that the number one excuse, reason, whatever word we want to use, that the people I've known in my life who've left the faith, who've left church, you know what the one thing that they say is? I left the church because they are a bunch of hypocrites. I want to know, is Christianity real? But if I'm looking for evidence from their lives, I don't know. They say one thing, but they do another. I hear their talk, but then I also see their walk. There's their Sunday creed, but then there's their Monday deed. And there is what I like to call a lifestyle gap. There's a difference between what we're saying we believe and what we're actually living. And I think that we have to look at this idea of authenticity versus duplicity. Authenticity versus duplicity. See, authenticity does not equal perfection. Are any of us perfect? No. Is it possible for me in my imperfection to be authentic, though? Yeah. See, I think the problem sometimes is that when we're imperfect, we also then become duplicit because I'm not living up to the standard I'm holding for myself, so let me portray a separate, different image to you. I'll live two lives. I'll put a mask on so you believe one thing about me, but I know the real me. Authenticity versus duplicity. And we need to be careful when we talk about not being perfect, right? Because sometimes I hear people say, well, yeah, there's no way for me to be perfect, so I might as well not even try to obey God. We're all imperfect, so this just happens to be how I sin. But that is not 
Authenticity, okay? Authenticity does not dismiss sin. I don't get a hall pass for sinning. God's gra- oh, God's grace is so great. That God's grace has not given you permission to sin. It's, if anything, given you permission to not sin, right? We are, I've got this on the screen here. We are not free to sin. We are free to not sin. You realize that there was a time in your life that you didn't have an option. Like you woke up and like you couldn't break the power of sin in your life. That habit, that addiction, that thing that was in you, you couldn't not give into it. But what Jesus has done is he said, no longer are you going to be bound by sin. You now have the freedom to do what's right. But somehow as Christians, we're like, well, I got freedom. I'll do whatever I want. Well, no, no, we're missing it. Romans chapter 6, verse 1, it says, um, this is Paul, and he's talking to this church, and they're having that same kind of conversation, like, I've been covered by Jesus' grace. I can do whatever I want. But here's what he says. Should we keep on sinning? So that God can show himself more and more wonderful in his grace? Of course not. (laughs) We have died to sin. How can we continue to live in it? The idea is that we're not doing what we want anymore. We're alive to Christ. See, authenticity does not equal perfection. Authenticity does not dismiss sin. Here's what authenticity does. Authenticity confesses sin. See, confessing sin means calling sin what it is. I confess this is wrong. And the confession of sin is the first place that we can begin to repent from sin. If I think that, what's something that's wrong that I shouldn't do? Anybody? Cheat. All right, I shouldn't cheat. Should I cheat on my spouse? Oh, no. She's right there. I shouldn't do that, right? Okay? I shouldn't cheat on my spouse, all right? But let's say that I really, really want to cheat on my spouse. Is it good to even want to cheat on my spouse? No, no, that's not good. There's some issues in the marriage, right? Like there's some things that aren't right. Like there's some needs not being met. So I may have this desire to cheat on my wife, and let's say that I actually found myself in a moment of weakness, in the wrong situation, and the girl was pretty, and I cheated on my wife. All right, question number one. Does that mean that I am bound for hell? (laughs) we got honesty from the back all right so this is a good point like because if I cheated on my spouse does that mean that I'm perfect it would mean that I'm imperfect right do only perfect people go to heaven no no forgiven people go to heaven Okay, so I in the moment here if I continue to live in a pattern I say you know what I don't care I'm gonna keep doing this sorry I'm just going to continue to live in a pattern of sin, that I'm not confessing that this is sin. I'm really just saying, I'm going to do what I want to do. And it's still wrong in God's eyes. And until I call this sin, there's no turning away from it. As long as this is okay in my eyes, I'm never going to turn towards God. So authenticity is not dismissing that this is okay. No, authenticity is saying, you know what? This is wrong. I confess this is sin, and I want to do right. I want to try to restore a relationship. I want to try to make things right, and I also want to make things right with God. Because not only have I broken my wife's heart, I've also broken God's heart. Because he never desired this. So confession, saying that this is not okay is the beginning of a path towards repentance. And my frustration with so many 
quote, Christians, is that they are sinning intentionally and saying it's no big deal. I can do this. What's the big deal? God loves me. God cares for me. I pray and I talk to him every day. Kay loves my favorite station. I read the verse of the Bible every day this week. But your heart is far from me. That's what God would say. I, I see your lip service, I see your actions, but your heart is far from me. You're in charge of your life, I'm not in charge of your life. That's what God would say. You're doing things your way, not my way. And when God is not in charge, God doesn't play. But I want God to have like, I want him to be a security blanket for me so I don't have to burn in hell. He doesn't be your security blanket just because you want him to be. He is your security blanket when you trust and you follow him. You say, well, does that mean it's this legalistic thing? I have to do all these things? No. That's not what I'm saying. But if you really love Jesus, you will do all these things. Doing these things doesn't equal a passion and love for God, but a love for God means doing all of these things. I love my wife. That's why I don't cheat on her. If I cheated on my wife, would I love her? No. In case you didn't know the answer to that. No. It's the same thing with God. If I obey God, yeah, it's out of an act of love, not otherwise. There's a verse in Hebrews nobody likes to talk about, so we'll just touch on it. Hebrews chapter 10, 26, this is written to the Christians, to those who are taking on the name of Christ. And the author of Hebrews says this, he says, dear friends, like listen, friends, not enemies, friends. If we deliberately continue sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. You don't get to keep doing whatever you want to do and think that God's okay with it. Authenticity versus duplicity. Authenticity is being genuine and real and taking ownership of your actions. Duplicity is saying, I'm not going to take ownership of my actions, but I want to portray that I'm being authentic even though I know I'm not. We are not free to sin. We are free to not sin. Authenticity is being transparent and taking ownership of your actions. Duplicity is living a double life. And this is where the label hypocrite comes in for Christians. You may not know this. The the word hypocrite is taken from the old Greek word that refers to wearing a mask. In Greece, often actors wore masks when they were portraying a certain character. And so the outward image that they were portraying was just a facade. It was an act because the real person was hidden. And so hypocrites became these mask wearers. And I think that sometimes as Christians, we are labeled as hypocrites, and I think partially because we tend to wear masks. See, the problem is that people in our world, it's not that they don't know any Christians. The problem is that they do. And they don't respect them. There's a quote by uh, Gandhi that you may have heard. Pretty popular, maybe one of the most popular things he says. He says, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. I I read some statistics this week. 85% of people who don't go to church think that Christians are hypocrites. 85%. Of those inside the church, like if we were to pull this room, 47% of you think Christians are hypocrites. Barna did some research, and what Barna said is that uh, 
you know, there's not much difference between born-again Christians and those who are not. Here's what the report said. It says, born-again believers were just as likely to bet or gamble, to visit a pornographic website, to take something that didn't belong to them, to consult a medium or a psychic, to physically fight or abuse someone, to have consumed enough alcohol to be considered legally drunk, to have used an illegal non-prescriptive drug, to have said something to someone that wasn't true, to have gotten back at someone for something he or she did, and to have said mean things behind another's back. There was no difference between those who followed Jesus and those who didn't. They were all just as likely to do the same thing. Lifestyle gaps. And these inconsistencies that we have between what we say and what we do, between our talk and our walk, between our creed and our deed. And let me just tell you this. Jesus was not a fan of hypocrisy and those who carried this self-righteousness or double standard. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 28, he says, outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. He wasn't a fan. In verse 25, he says, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. Verse 13, he says, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves, and you don't let others enter either. Jesus has a zero tolerance for hypocrisy, but he has unlimited grace for the honest. In our world today, people, you know, if I talk to my dad and the boomers, they're all like, man, this generation's so soft, they're so sensitive. And I, I, I understand where they're coming from. I, I spend time with high schoolers all the time, and, and yeah, they, they're getting a little softer over time. But insensitivity in our world today, I think sensitivity is at an all-time high. People are super sensitive to lifestyle gaps that people have. And it's not that they're shocked when they look at Christians and they're like, oh, you don't walk what you talk. They're not shocked by it. They've just actually become to think that it's normal. Like, that's just, yeah, that's what I figured. Just another example of someone who said one thing and did another. Hashtag Me Too movement. I saw how you were living as an actor, but then I heard all the stuff that happened, and now you're in prison. Oh, there's another uh, church leader who's been found in sexual immorality and no longer in ministry. Yep, I don't expect anything different anymore. Of course, there's lifestyle gaps. Nobody's really authentic. Everybody's duplicit. And I think that you and I, who are Christians, have got to take some ownership for the lifestyle gap and recognize that's on us. That's on us. We don't get to blame God for that. No, no. We have made a mockery of Christianity to so many people when we choose to live duplicit lives. Oh, no, I love Jesus. Well, then why are you cohabitating? Why are you having sex outside of marriage? God said to do it this way. Well, you know, God understands. No, I don't, I don't think he does. I don't think he does. There's a standard for a reason. It doesn't move just because you had a different perspective. People recognize the gaps in our lives. We need to take ownership of those gaps because, again, people want to know, is Christianity real? Jake, age 32, he says, My former pastor used to teach baptism by immersion. Then he got a better job with the Presbyterians, and now he teaches baptism can be done by sprinkling. 
Obviously, what you believe depends on where your paycheck's coming from. Amber, age 22, says that her mom used to work all the angles with the church they attended. She was a single mom, and our family needed help. I still remember her trying to get in close with the leaders of the church, you know, kind of pretending to be spiritual, or at least that's what I thought of her. I still have major doubts that she's as spiritual as she tries to make herself out to be. Preston, age 23, he's a Mormon. Here's his comments about his Christian friends. The message about talking to Mormons with love seems hollow, especially when I've heard Christians joking about us. It would be like exclaiming that you'll feed the starving in Ethiopia, but then laugh about how scrawny they are. And I don't find either very funny. Aaron, age 30, said that her husband abused her, even though he taught Bible studies at the church about how husbands should love their wives. Aaron's now divorced. For better or worse, people shape their ideas about the reality and authenticity of following Christ on Christians' lives. That's why I'm convinced that those who, quote, leave the faith are not necessarily walking away from Jesus, but rather they're walking away from a form of Christianity, which is a fake Christianity, because they've witnessed something that's not of God in the lives of other people. They trusted a Christian and they were let down, and so now they're questioning Christianity, whether it's real. And I think this is where there's a tension for us as people who call ourselves Christians to manage. Because as Christians, we are not perfect, but we are never to act like it's okay or permissible to sin. Okay, so we don't do that. We're not to sin. We're not to do this thing. But if we're not careful, and this is the tension, we put all of our attention and energy into not sinning. And not sinning isn't supposed to be our number one goal. Do you feel the tension? Am I to sin? No. Is that all I'm supposed to be focused on in this life? No. It is a priority, but it's not the single only priority as a Christ follower. And so there's this tension. I don't get to dismiss sin and say, yeah, it's okay. I'm really helping other people know Jesus. I don't get to dismiss it. I have to still work on this, but I can be authentic about it and confess I'm struggling here. Struggling doesn't mean giving in. Struggling means I'm trying to resist and I'm struggling to resist. Like there has to be a battle. But at the same time, I need to be focused on the things that God's calling me to. And so it's this tension that we have. It's kind of the tension between grace and truth, right? Um, Do we all deserve to go to hell? Yeah. Hey, there's grace. You don't have to go to hell. Awesome. Well, how do I manage that tension? (laughs) Like, do I just do whatever I want because God's grace is there? Do I work in fear because, hey, I really didn't deserve it? Truth and grace. There's tensions that we manage. And so as we try to land this message, here's my final thoughts. For people who are outside of the faith, number one, I want to tell you, I want to issue an apology on behalf of all the Christians. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that you've been hurt. I'm so sorry that we haven't set a better example I'm so sorry that we've been duplicit. I'm so sorry that our pride and our ego got in the way and that we led you to believe something that's not true. And we are super, super sorry that we've made you think less of Jesus. Does the church have problems? Absolutely. 
And I do believe that hypocrisy has been a barrier for some people to hear and understand the message of Christianity. And we are sorry for our self-righteousness and hypocrisy. And I think if we're honest, we're all hypocrites at some level. The problem is the air of moral superiority that we carry around with us. The problem is that we sometimes stop acknowledging our imperfections and forget where we came from and all that God has done in our lives. And the very grace that God has shown us is a grace that we need to show others. And so you may be asking, if you're outside of the faith, how can Christianity be true if Christians are hypocrites? And so I want to tell you that Christianity is true not because of Christ's followers, but because of Christ himself. And so my point here would be, I would want you to determine that Christianity is true based on what Jesus said and did, not what his followers said and did. See, the behavior of Jesus' followers is never the criteria through which we measure the authenticity or validity of the gospel. We measure the Christian faith by what Jesus said. Never once did I see Jesus um, having people come to him and ask him questions about whether he's the son of God, and he say, hang on, let me show you my disciples. They will be the evidence that I am the son of God. And you got this motley crew of 12 dudes, you know, passing gas, fishing over here, stealing money, eating food. What, us? Like, yeah, Peter was never the example of why Jesus is the Son of God. He never pointed to them. He probably stepped in front of his disciples and said, look at me, eyes on me. Don't look at them. Eyes on me. Our validity for who Christ is is Christ himself, not people who follow him. And if you're outside the faith, I encourage you to fix your eyes upon Jesus and use him as your criteria. Now, for those of us inside the faith who probably have varying degrees of hypocrisy in our own life, here's the antidote for hypocrisy. Number one, integrity and impurity. Okay? Integrity and purity. You want to make sure people don't call you a hypocrite? Then live with integrity and purity. Got it? I mean, it's pretty simple. Stop lying. Stop deceiving. Stop withholding truth. Be pure in thought and deed. Oh, it starts here. Number two, antidote to hypocrisy. All right, so I'm getting integrity. I'm getting purity down. Number two, I now have to experience and practice authenticity and ownership. I got to be real, and I got to own my choices. See, on one level, hypocrisy is just simply failing to acknowledge the inconsistencies in your life. It's a state of denial. And so if we want to overcome that, we have to own it, and we have to confess sin as we see it. Philip Yancey, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, said this, having spent time around sinners and also around purported saints... I have a hunch why Jesus spent so much time with the former group. I think he preferred their company because the sinners were honest about themselves and had no pretense. Jesus could deal with them. And in contrast, the saints put on airs, judged him, and sought to catch him in a moral trap. In the end, it was the saints, not the sinners, who arrested Jesus. I think we all need to be honest.
we cannot dismiss the criticism of hypocrisy by saying Christians aren't perfect. They're just sinners like everybody else. Yes, but, but the lifestyle gap that they are witnessing is on us. And we need to own the fact that our lifestyles have gotten us in trouble. When avoiding sin becomes our main concern and is not balanced by other important priorities of faith, it sets up the conditions in which we have a get it and got it together image. And we want to make ourselves look as though we've tamed our struggle with sin. And so I want to encourage you to allow your passion for Jesus to result in God-honoring moral lifestyles, not the other way around. Passion for Jesus results in God-honoring moral lifestyles not the other way around. Final story, and we're going to go over, so prepare yourselves. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 through 35, final story that I'm going to share before we dismiss for some regroups. This is a famous parable that Jesus shared with his disciples. Peter, one of the disciples, came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times. That seems like a lot, Jesus. That would be really good. Seven seems like perfect. What do you think? And he's like, no, not seven times. How about 70 times seven? Like, you're going to be more offended than you think, Pete. And so, verse 23, he says, Therefore, let me share your story. The kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. In the original language, this is like 20 times like a, like a yearly salary. It was such an outrageous amount of money, there was no way this person could ever pay it back. And like, Jesus is almost being like, let's just think about the most amount of money you can think of. That's how much he owed. He couldn't pay. So his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. But, but the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me and I will pay it all, which is a lie. He can't pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him, and he released him and forgave his debt. Can you imagine you owe millions, you owe nothing. The idea that your student loan was canceled, okay, it just got canceled. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time, be patient with me and I will pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. Now, when some of the servants saw this, they were very upset, as you would be. There's an injustice here. They went to the king, and they told him everything that had happened. And then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, You evil servant. I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? And then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he paid his entire debt. And then Jesus wraps up his story with this. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. There's probably a lot of takeaways to this verse. The hypocrisy in it is definitely really evident. The guy did not 
forgive the other person's debt when he had been forgiven us so much. Jesus is probably saying in here, you know, the least thing that you could do is forgive others because, look, I've forgiven you so much. But how about this as a possible reading into this? Why do you think that he went and grabbed the guy who owed him thousands of dollars and forced him to pay him back? Why, why would he do that after he'd been forgiven so much? Do you think it's possible that he didn't believe the master? Do you think it's possible that he kind of felt like, oh, I, I was told that I was forgiven, but I wonder if the master's going to come back for all the money. I'd better just go ahead and get all the money I can. I'd better start saving because I bet he didn't really forgive the debt. I think he might be coming back, and I'd better be ready to show that I've at least made some ground. I wonder. I wonder if that would have been his intention. And if it is, the issue of the story becomes that he didn't believe the master. He didn't trust him. And I think that's where many of us find ourselves. Do we trust the master? Do we trust that when he says something's not good for us, that it's really not good for us? Do we trust when he says this is the way that you should live, that that's really the way we should live? Do we really trust what he says? See, if you don't trust what he says, you're liable to be read just like this man, a hypocrite, as you act one way while you confess something else. I want to encourage you, as people who, quote, love God, to truly love him and trust what he says. Because what he has done for us is almost too good to believe, just like forgiving millions of dollars. If you guys would, would you bow your heads and let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this chance that we had to come together. And God, as we think about, Lord, how we're perceived in the world, Lord, may we take a moment to pause. May we consider the labels that maybe have been given to us, God, and may we be honest with ourselves. Do they fit? Are we guilty for causing others to not embrace Christianity because of the lifestyle gaps that we have? Lord, I pray that if there is a gap in any of us who are claiming to follow you, that your Holy Spirit right now in this very moment would bring it to our mind. I pray, Lord, that that sin, that thing that's causing separation and division in our life, would be brought to the forethought of our head, that we wouldn't continue to live a duplicit life wearing a mask, but, Lord, that we would be authentic, that we would own it, that we would confess it, and that we would begin to go down the path that your Holy Spirit will lead us to wholeness and redemption. And I pray, Lord, for those who are outside of the faith, maybe those who even have walked away, who grew up in the church, and they look back and they say, man, they're all hypocrites. Lord, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would do a work in them and allow them to reevaluate Christianity, not based upon what your followers have done, but based upon what your son Jesus did on the cross and what you continue to do. And Lord, I pray that we would all return to you, that we would trust you, that we would follow you, and that one day there would be a fuller heaven and an emptier hell. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. For more information, please visit newlifekc.com.